Are you confused about real food and what's healthy and good for the planet? Do you need the facts about local, organic, and sustainable food? Well, get ready to change the way you eat. Get ready for The Appropriate Omnivore with Aaron Zober. Hello, and welcome to the return of The Appropriate Omnivore podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Zober. I've been on hiatus for a number of years, but always planned on returning. So here I am with version 2.0 of the show. We'll be doing things a little bit differently. I'll be releasing a number of podcasts at once, all episodes sharing a common theme. As this show is called The Appropriate Omnivore, what else to begin with than a series called All About the Beef? There are four episodes, each dealing with different subjects related to my favorite protein. For my first episode, I interview Meredith Bell, founder of Autonomy Farms. One of the most important things we say in the world of real food is know your farmer, because it's important to know where your food comes from. Farmers markets are known mainly for produce, but several meat vendors are also available at them. I began buying from this person at my local farmer's market a couple of years ago, so let me now bring out my first guest for the return of the appropriate omnivore. Meredith, it's great to have you here. In addition to the farmer's market I frequent, I know you do several other farmer's markets, as well as the time you spend on your farm tending to the livestock and crops, so I appreciate that you can take the time out to join us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. I think you fit very well. This is a theme we're doing called All About the Beef. And so why don't you tell us a little bit about Autonomy Farm's mission? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I started the farm four years ago. I had actually previously worked in sales in the food and beverage industry. And the longer I stayed in it, I just realized that there was a huge disconnect between the consumer and the farmer. And, you know, I was selling this, you know, these products that I necessarily didn't even eat or believe in myself. So my whole goal and I kind of decided that I was going to do a career switch and either go back to grad school to get into public policy or education and kind of look at doing that and finally decided that I could have a bigger impact on people and also for my own personal fulfillment if I actually started a farm where people could connect with their farmer and understand the process and why it's so important to know your food source and how it affects your health and kind of your overall, you know, well-being. So everything that we do is raised with organic methods. You know, we're really trying to help add fertility and, and make the soil better than what it was before and obviously making sure that all the animals are raised in the most humane you know way possible so it's really you know a, a passion I think more than anything and, and making sure that you know what we believe in is, is what we're doing and then that way customers get the best possible product. Would you say that it was a combination of both health and environmental issues that got you into regenerative agriculture? My biggest thing you know I'd always been focused on the environment but more, for, more so for me it was really about the health issue. And that's what drove me into it. And as I've farmed for longer, environmental has become a huge part of it because you can't really have healthy animals and healthy soils without focusing on making sure that you're, you know, you're focusing on the environment. And so it all kind of ties in together. But my passion and I felt like there's so many people that have health issues or people go through daily life not realizing that they're not living their life to the full potential and not even realizing how bad they feel just because that's just always how they felt. So that's where it was super important to me and where my passion came from. And what about your methods do you feel makes it healthier for people? Well, I mean, obviously, as animals are being treated properly and being fed the, the 
the diet that they should be fed, that's going into the animal and then that's going into our body. So, you know, making sure that the animals aren't being pumped full of hormones or antibiotics, which, you know, obviously goes in the meat and then we consume that. Same thing with making sure that the animals are fed a diet that's natural to them. So you're talking about grasses and not being pumped full of corn and, and different grains. That obviously impacts the health of the animal, which then affects the meat and it's a whole trickle down. So that's obviously really important knowing that what you're eating isn't being sprayed, you know, with chemicals. So you're not eating, the animals aren't eating what's called like Roundup Ready hay or alfalfa that's sprayed with Roundup because that obviously goes into their diet and the meat as well. And, and that is the whole cycle, you know, and I think when people also start to become aware of where their food is coming from and knowing the farmer, they start to really acknowledge and see the processed foods and the amount of sugars that are consumed and you become more aware of all of that with your supporting your local farmers and and knowing where your food source you're buying fresh and obviously if you're not eating processed packaged foods that plays into your overall health as well and I think when people start to realize and start to touch their farmer it ties them together right they start to ditch the processed foods and start to eat a lot more local seasonal items absolutely and pasture is the base now you raise many different animals all on these open pastures Polly's Face Farms Joel Salatin describes himself first and foremost though as a grass farmer would you say that fits you well <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, we're obviously growing um, grasses and forage for the animals. That's basically the entire point of the farm. And what response have you seen in terms of customers' thoughts about these pastured meats, grass-fed beef and pastured chicken, pork, lamb? It's interesting. We we work with very, very different demographics of customers. Farm is located just outside of Bakersfield, where the movement of grass-fed beef hasn't really necessarily started here. It's just barely kind of on the upswing. So, we, you know, in Bakersfield, we spend a lot of time and a lot of energy educating customers and, and kind of letting them know the difference of grass-fed beef and why it's healthier and pasture-raised meat and, and what the difference is. And a lot of times, once people actually taste it and try it, then it speaks for itself. But actually convincing somebody of why it's better takes a lot of time and a lot of labor, a lot of energy, a lot of money, kind of all of it. You know, whereas in Los Angeles, it's a totally different customer. Almost all of our customers in Los Angeles are coming to us and then they're automatically asking us the questions, you know, which we love, right? We love that people have already kind of educated themselves and they know. And so they come and they'll say, is that 100% grass-fed? How old are the cattle when they're harvested? What is their rotation? Are they being bred on, on the property? How many cycles do the cattle go through? I mean, they have, everyone has these questions. So it's making sure from our end that spending both the time on educating people because it's important that people understand and people know, but then also making sure that the customers that are coming to us in LA know exactly what our business practices and farm practices are as well um, and making sure that we live up to what their expectations are. Right. And I think a lot of farmers must go through with that. Rural areas, that's where they have the land for the farms, while people in the urban areas... They're the ones that are more interested in the practices. So do you see this as being a challenge for regenerative agriculture for kind of the long run? Funny, I, I feel like the more small farmers and the more people that are understanding regenerative agriculture and biodynamic farming and no-tilling and, you know, like you, you start to hear a lot more of these buzzwords. And so there's a lot more people talking about it. And so I think you have that kind of effect, right, where there's a lot more documentaries, there's a lot more books and it's becoming more accessible. And I think speaking in Bakersfield, it's not necessarily that people People don't believe in it or they don't think it's great once you start talking to them, but 
it had just never been here. And I think you have the entire group of people in Bakersfield that grow their own food and they homeschool and they do all that. And then you have very much those people that have never heard about it before. And, and the more people that join in on this movement and educate, the better it is. And, you know, I always tell people when, you know, another farmer comes into Bakersfield and, you know, when I when I started, I, I think probably only two other small farms in Bakersfield and nobody was doing meat. And now there's several of us. And I think people, one of the questions people always ask me is like, oh, does that bother you now? Because people have seen what you guys have had in the movement and the growth. But there's more than enough business for all of us and there's more than enough customers. And so, you know, the more farmers that get out there, the more we can spread the word and help to educate people. And I feel like it truly is like a group effort. And I would never, ever speak down on another farmer that's doing the same thing because it's like they're just one more person that's helping show society why it's so important to eat healthy and know your farmer and not only for your health but for the environment so so it kind of succeeds by word of mouth essentially yeah absolutely and i mean word of mouth is going to be tell people all the time word of mouth is our biggest referral source i think obviously for a lot of reasons people are skeptical of where their food comes from. And I think there's a lot of blogs and documentaries out there that I think they're trying to do good, but I think they've created a fear mongering, for lack of a better term, where, you know, they're making people scared of exactly where the food comes from straight across the board, which I think isn't necessarily fair. There's a good way to communicate it without instilling that fear. So I think, you know, when customers hear word of mouth and they say, like, I buy from this farmer and their meat's great or their produce is great or their cheese is great or whatever it is, their friends automatically believe that because their friend has told them that you know where as a farmer I can tell you what our practices are, are all the time but a lot of customers they don't necessarily believe it until they hear it from somebody else and I think that's partially at fault from corporate America and the difference between calling something grass-fed when it's not grass-finished or free-range eggs well what 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 exactly is a free-range egg you have all these customers that believe in the marketing and then as they start to educate themselves they're like holy hell like all this time i believe this stuff and from the marketing and now they almost feel like they were dumb and they were taken advantage of and so i think that creates kind of that skeptical buying decisions that a lot of people have i've seen that being the case what you're talking about earlier about a lot of documentaries that are made I think even though they talk about the benefits of pasture farms at the end of them, they often spend most of the documentary with an emphasis and showing how the footage in the feedlots is so shocking. One documentary that I think had a pretty positive outlook was American Meat. Have you seen that one? I haven't seen that one, no. Now that's a good one I recommend because okay. Ron Merriweather, who's been on this program before, he made the effort to focus it without using any footage from factory farms. So even he even goes to some more conventional farms, but doesn't feel the need to show all of just the shocking footage of it. I can really talk more about what works because I think that's the issue with them is right. no one goes away really taking away the idea of, oh, here's this alternative that we have. They're so focused on the shocking footage that they see at the beginning. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah and and I, I think, I mean, that's, that's exactly part of the point, you know, and I think that's what I was saying, like that fear mongering where it's like, there's so much good being done out there. And I think, you know, we need to focus more on that and helping people understand the right way to do it. Not always about what's the wrong way to do it, because if people don't understand the right way, then it doesn't really matter what the wrong way is. And going back to word of mouth, I think there's many ways we can do it, not just as the farmers, but also people like me and the journalists, the authors. I feel like I mm -hmm. learned about this kind of ahead of the curve. I read the book, The Omnivore's Dilemma back in 2008, and that's what got me really interested in it. And at that time, 
didn't really see a lot of grass-fed beef available like at stores or in restaurants. And just looking at the 10 years now of how things have changed, we are seeing a lot more of it. And we certainly have a lot more people that are aware of these terms like grass-fed beef and pasture-raised yeah, and I mean, I, I I love it. Like, and I love seeing like when people say, "Well, Costco carries it now." I'm like, that is freaking awesome. Like, the fact that consumers have been able to change a company's buying decisions. That's exactly the point, right? And so we look at a lot of customers, and we get a lot of customers that come to us, and they say, "Well, I'm vegetarian now, or I'm a vegan, or a pescatarian, or whatever it is," because of the fact that I just think all animals are treated inhumanely, which, you know, you look at as a rancher who's trying to do right and you want to tell them like, no, like you not buying any meat straight across the board, those corporate America doesn't see you as a lost customer, right? They don't see you, they don't see the people as lost revenue. But what they do see is those customers spending their buying dollars at small ranchers and people that are doing it the harder way, but the right way, you know? And so then they say, okay, well, now I've lost this part of my market. How can I change my business practices so I can gain those customers back. And that's how you change corporate culture. It's through your dollars, through your buying decisions. And like, again, when, when people, when these companies see that customers are demanding organic and demanding grass-fed and demanding hormone and antibiotic-free, all of a sudden they're like, well, if I don't change, I'm going to lose these customers and it's going to affect my bottom line. So I think that that's huge. And, and I think people don't realize that every single purchase that they make, how it can change corporate culture. Do you have any customers that have said they don't have to be vegetarian anymore thanks to your products? You know, we get more customers that are saying that they're, they're vegetarians or vegans and they're coming off of it and they feel comfortable buying our products knowing that. But I don't necessarily have anybody that's ever come to me that says, like, I'm no longer a vegetarian because of your products. But it's definitely like that they're in their mindset saying, well, if I'm going to eat meat, I want to make sure that it's raised right and from where I know it's coming from and whatever their emotional trigger point is for what makes them buy. Interesting. I've heard some other farmers say that, that they have had customers who said, thank you, we no longer have to be vegetarians. But we are talking about, I've seen that too. I found that a lot of people in the community, such as Price, Paleo, Primal, that does involve a lot of ex-vegans and vegetarians. One time, Denise Ming gave a presentation at a conference and she asked how many people here used to be vegan and a lot of hands went up. So I think that yeah. does make up a big part of the community is people that they realize that for one reason or another, they couldn't thrive on just vegetables or even in some cases they couldn't thrive on vegetables with a little dairy or even fish in it. So they realize that where they have to go is they have to eat some meats, but they want to do it the right way. Right. I mean, those are the consumers that educated themselves, you know, like they are looking at it and they're saying either I felt bad before or I, I saw something that I didn't like. So those are the highly educated consumers. And those are also the people that make their buying decisions based on their emotion, right? And so farmer's market, and it's one of the things that I tell all of our employees is that people come to farmer's markets because they want to connect with their food. And it's emotional for them, like their health, their well-being, their kids' health, their dog's health, whatever they're buying for, it's emotional for them. And people have to understand that, and, and employees of ours have to understand that, that it's not considered like a transactional transaction, you know, where people just come in and buy it and they leave and they don't ever think about it again. Like people are at a farmer's markets and buying this meat because they're passionate about it. They don't pay more for it and go out of their way and inconvenience themselves to go to farmer's markets because they don't really care. And so that's something that's within somebody. And so it would, it would make sense that people within these groups that you referred to are obviously more educated about it. I think another reason people come to these farmer's markets, and I think it's kind of related with knowing your farmer, is also the idea 
of eating local, what would you say are the biggest advantages of eating local? Well, I mean, obviously you're getting a much better product. I always use the peach or like the heirloom tomatoes because I feel like those are the two easiest and like most relatable for most people. But you're taking a peach from a grocery store and comparing it to a peach from a farmer's market or the same thing with a tomato. The taste alone, those items from the farmer's market are going to be so much better and, you know, have so much more flavor than what you're going to get from a grocery store. And I think that's one of the things is that you always tell people like it's always about the taste. You know, we say like our ground beef, for instance, when somebody has never bought grass-fed beef or they've never bought meat from a farmer's market, which is a huge thing for us. And we get lots of questions from where people come up and they're like, oh, they sell meat in the market? You know, like they don't even think about it. And you're like, well, yeah, we're farmers as well. We just don't raise produce, but we still farm. We always suggest trying a pound of ground. People have just become so, they just assume like a pound of ground beef is a ground pound of ground beef, no matter where you get it from. But when they try it for the first time, they're like, this is so different. It just tastes so beefy. And that's what everyone says, like it just tastes so beefy. You know, and I think that is something that you know immediately. And when you're buying locally and, and you're not having it shipped in from out of state or across seas or wherever, you know that you're getting something that's fresher, you know, you're minimizing your carbon footprint. So, I mean, there's so many positives about buying local. Absolutely. Do you think the eat local argument also makes the case for why we need to eat meat? In other words, perhaps it's not sustainable to only eat vegetables if we rely on local agriculture. I feel like we get into this debate a lot about the meat versus no meat versus what's healthy, what's not healthy. But yeah, I mean, when it comes down to it, I think when you're eating meat that's raised properly, it has much more flavor, right? And so I think the problem is and what's happening is that people are over consuming meat and that's where you're getting the carbon gases and you're getting all of these discussions about feedlots and why it's so bad for the environment. But I think realistically, like people, we shouldn't be eating more than you know, four to five ounces of meat a day. And even as a farmer, like, I probably don't even eat meat every day. So I think, you know, as people start to eat meat that's raised locally and raised from small farmers or raised right, they'll realize that their consumption of meat goes down, not because of any other reason besides the fact that the meat that they're getting just tastes so great and so full of flavor that they're feeling more satiated earlier on versus like continuing to search for that flavor where they're, you know, eating 10 ounces, 12 ounces of meat. I agree we don't need to eat that much meat. I go with pretty much the same way that I make sure that it's only about four ounces of meat. And I think that's something that you can tell people when they see the prices of this meat to explain that, well, you don't need to eat the whole steak either. If you're someone, single guy like me, you can split it up and then you have several meals throughout the week. Or if you're someone with a family, you can split it up with the family. And then you surround the rest of the plate with a lot of vegetables, which in addition to livestock, you also grow some crops, I know, at your farm. So why don't you tell us a little about the produce your farm has to offer? Yeah, it was one of the things where, um, so when we started growing produce, that was a huge part of our business. And we incorporated the chickens into the farm so that basically they can help add fertility back into the ground before we planted new crops. And so we, you know, we're doing this crop rotation and incorporating the animals and the livestock and so the idea behind it is as we grow vegetables, we will take the chickens and run the chickens through the vegetable rows after they're done being harvested or cultivated. Um, and they're obviously eating whatever bugs are there, whatever plants are left over. Um, and while they're doing that, then as their poop goes into the ground, obviously they're adding nitrogen, which then we turn the ground over and replant the next crop. 
And so, you know, I mean, it's great because we end up having a really great chicken, um, which, you know, has become a huge part of our farm and people have become really, you know, obsessed with our chickens, which is funny because it, you know, like I said, it was kind of just a byproduct of the produce, but now they go hand in hand and we can't have one without the other. But all of our produce that we offer, we grow year round. So, and it's just a variety of rotational crops. And currently at this point, we pretty much only offer it to wholesale customers in a weekly CSA program that we offer. So you can get weekly boxes and we're at capacity just through doing that, which has been great. Right. So you raise a lot of different animals and grow also a bunch of different crops. And is this something that you'd recommend to other farmers to raise as many different animals and grow as many different plants as possible? I feel like I've definitely made my life really hard by the amount of products that we offer. But it's been one of those things where everything kind of ties in now and we kind of set the farm up that way. So when people first start farming, and I've had a lot of people ask that question first, and, you know, I would definitely always suggest you know, not doing quite as much. I mean, because there's, I feel like most weeks probably almost killing myself by the amount of hours that I work. But, you know, it works for what we have now. And now we have, you know, this customer base that appreciates and respects what we do. But yeah, I mean, I always tell people like when you start, start with one animal and some crops or whatever it is and get that perfected and then you can grow um, and kind of expand. I think that makes sense to start simple and then expand as your farm is growing literally and figuratively. And yeah, <laughs> and because I think one of of the big things of growing as many different crops and raising as many different animals is that's the best way to keep the soil fertile. Yeah. And also just for me, like I look at the crops and the vegetables and that's my biggest passion is I love seeing the vegetables and I love having people out and look at them and touch them. And, you know, that's something that can pick a tomato right off the vine and the kids say, I don't like tomatoes. And you're like, but try this tomato and they try it and they're like, oh, so I think that's the easiest for people to relate to. So when you have those crops and you have the vegetables, then it's very easy to say, okay, well, now you get this concept. Now imagine what the meat tastes like and just, you know, envision that because of how good this one tomato tastes. And so it's very easy to kind of cross sell and, and cross promote your business that way because people relate to vegetables really, really easily. Whereas with meat, they don't necessarily say like, oh, well, that chicken doesn't taste like chicken, but real chicken does taste like chicken and real beef does taste like beef. Um, so it works for us because it goes hand in hand. Right. So that's another example of people's dietary preferences changing. We talked earlier about their preferences changing about meat, and you can also change their preferences of vegetables, which... A lot of kids, right, they do hate vegetables. On the flip side, has anything changed with your farming practices since you started? Yeah, so farming practices, we definitely decrease the amount of crops that we grow, the vegetables. And so what we found is that we were spending a lot of labor and a lot of time. You know, over the course of a year, we would grow 150 different varieties of vegetables. So we've actually significantly scaled back on that. And so what we've done is grown a larger amount of lesser options, right? And we found that it hasn't really affected our CSA or our customer base at all, that we're still offering enough variety that people aren't feeling like they're missing out on things, but it's been able to allow us to decrease our overhead, which obviously as a small farmer, that's a huge portion of just managing the business. And I read that your beef has more yellow fat content in it, making it more beefy than that which is found in stores. What do you think is the key to doing this? Yeah. 
what happens when beef is fed a grain or corn is that the fat tends to turn more white on it. And, and the fat colors can change, too, throughout the season on grass-fed beef. But typically what you'll find of grass-fed beef is that you'll have a more kind of off-white to yellowish color. And as I said, that changes by season. And for a lot of our regular customers, they can also taste the seasonality of our beef, right? Because during the spring, you know, you'll have meat that's coming straight off the grasses, right? There's lots of grasses and um, everything's really green. Whereas in the summer and the fall here, we are super dry, especially being in the drought. And so cattle are basically eating those dried grasses. And so you can taste that those subtle hints um, in the seasonality of the meat. But yeah, I mean, one of the ways that I always tell people and how you can tell like good grass-fed beef is, is look at the coloring of the fat. And that leads me to another question I did want to get in about the droughts as we've had several here in California in the last few years. And I want to know how that has affected your farm. Yeah, I mean, honestly, earlier this spring, we were super worried because we hadn't had any rain this winter. And so we were looking at, you know, the hills and saying, well, if we don't get rain, we're not going to have any grasses and then we're not going to have any feed for the cattle. And so thank goodness we ended up getting a really late rain kind of in late February, early March that got us through. But, you know, when that happens, basically what inevitably you have to do is you have to supplement and you end up supplementing with Seth's grass, Sudan grass, hay, alfalfa, you know, different things that you can feed the cattle to get them through these drier months. But when you're doing that, it significantly increases the cost because now not only are you having your labor to raise the cattle, but now you're also having your labor to raise to grow these grasses, which then you're having to feed to the cattle. So, you know, you're still focusing on all the same regenerative ranching practices where you're rotating the cattle and moving them through and taking care of them. But now on top of it, you've increased your cost because you're having to supplement with this feed. So the drought's been huge. There's points where like, you know, earlier this spring that we were like, man, we may do a big, you know, mass harvest where we're harvesting 50 head of beef just to get them out of the field and we'll just sit on them and store them in cold storage and freezers and then sell out, you know, sell it that way for the year because if you don't have feed, you can't have cattle. And so it definitely plays, plays a role in everything. So for us, even at the farm, you know, not having the rain, then our well doesn't get replenished because that's where we get our water from. And if the water table's dropping, then we have to think about, okay, are we going to have to dig a bigger well? And there's so many factors that go into it. Absolutely. And I mean, I know a lot of farmers that have been facing that last several years. Were the potential drought something that you figured into the farm when starting it? Or was this more something that kind of came as a surprise? Well, you know, I came into the farm already, we were already in the middle of the drought, right? So I started the farm four years ago and the drought was already well occurring. And so you go into it and you kind of look and think like, okay, well, how does this play a role? And, and I was a city girl. Like I, you know, you would hear about the drought and you'd be like, ah, oh, whatever, you know, like I, I never, never did I think about how that would impact the food source. And now as a farmer, every single thing we do is based on water. Every single thing. If you don't have water, then the animals aren't going to have any water to drink. They're not going to have any feed. Every single thing we do is based around water. And so, you know, I, I think farmers stress out about it a lot more than anybody else because the livelihood not only of your business, but also the livelihood of the animals. I do some gardening at home and yeah, it is an issue too of, of the drought when there's not a lot of rain about how to handle it. But I imagine also where you are, because it's more up in the high deserts, I live closer to the ocean. I imagine that the drought affects uh, certainly the uh, the inland uh, area of California more so than the coastal. Right. We're in an area, you know, it's, we basically have what's called a rain shadow. So we're already in a dry area. Um, and that's why the San Joaquin Valley is so great at growing because we don't have a lot of those ups and downs of the weather. So, you know, but then when you have the drought on top of it and you're already in a rain shadow, then you're like getting double hit. So yeah, the water can't even begin to stress the importance of water. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> 
after you farm came in, did you find the area of it replenished as far as the grasslands and everything? Yeah, I mean, you definitely start to see, I mean, not only like the grasses and, you know, what's growing, but also the wildlife, which I think you don't realize, like you can look at like a barren piece of dirt and just be like, okay, we're going to, you know, help to, to build the soil, the topsoil back up so that we can grow grasses and vegetables and whatever. But you also don't realize how much wildlife is missing as we've started to regenerate the soil and get it back to where it should be. You know, we're seeing a lot more like salamander and frogs and you know just ladybugs I mean just basic you know bees basic insects and bugs that w definitely 100% did not exist here before so in reading about your farm some other things that I thought was interesting was you're one of the few farmers still processing the birds yourself what made you decide to do this mm -hmm. what are the advantages well there's a couple of advantages one is that we control the process and so we know exactly how the birds are being treated at the end of the life so that when we say our animals only have one bad day we truly know that they really only have one bad day you know and it's another thing that I feel like for me personally being able to have the animals on the farm the entire time and being able to control the process it's a huge advantage for us to say like we know 100% that these are our birds and you know they were treated properly and it also helps to keep the income and the cost on the farm where we were outsourcing it we'd obviously have to pay a plant to do that so we'd be paying somebody else to do it whereas if I'm keeping it on the farm then I can hire employees I can help the local economy and the community and we can keep all the, that money here through our labor costs. Do you see yourself eventually processing the other livestock on your farm yourself? No honestly it's once you get into large livestock there's a lot more regulations federal regulations that go into it and you're having to deal a lot more with the USDA and I, I honestly just feel like there's so many rules and so many regulations and so many permits and so much paperwork that it's consuming and sometimes it's so incredibly frustrating you know when you have to deal with one more government agency. I tell people like as a normal person you go to the DMV what like once every 10 years imagine having to go to the DMV multiple times every single year or social security office and that's what farmers have to deal with and it's frustrating right and it's super inefficient and so I feel like inevitably when sadly I end up making a lot of business decisions based off of what can I do that I don't have to necessarily deal with one more government agency. <laughs> it's horrible. It's horrible to think that and it's horrible to say it as an American citizen, but it's just is like how much more regulation can we handle and how much more time do I have to be regulated and fill out paperwork? You know, where I'm like, I just want to farm. I don't care about your paperwork anymore. Like, I just want to be in the field and, you know, showing people where the food comes from. Within talking about the future of autonomy farms, I know that you recently purchased 20 acres. Tell us a little more of what this will allow us to see from autonomy farms. I would love to be able to really incorporate um, a lot more agritourism to the farm. So we do a little bit of it, but being that we don't have facilities or, you know, wash stations or those kind of things for people. We haven't done a ton of it, but that's a huge aspect of the farm. And one thing that I've always been super passionate about is being able to have families out here and do field trips and do camps and partner with the schools. So that's, you know, kind of short-term picture and that's coming in pretty quickly. Um, but, you know, I, mean, I would love to be able to look at this farm and say, okay, knowing what I know now and, and where we're at and, and seeing where the growth of the business is, being able to say, okay, I've, I've been this on this 20 acres. Now let's do it again on these 20 acres and just slowly kind of scale the farm to make it more and more more accessible for more customers. Floors are great. I think that goes with what you were talking about earlier of Know Your Farmer, and I'd love to take a farm visit at Autonomy Farms. Yeah, I think there's nothing more rewarding, and, and as a consumer, as a customer, like being able to see truly where your food comes from, and it just makes you so much more passionate. And I think everyone always knows how hard farmers work, and everyone says like, oh, you know, it's, it must be so hard, and you know, it's 105 out here today, like it's really freaking hard. We bust our butts every single day, but 
I think until a lot of people come out to a farm and see it, they don't quite grasp it. I think it's just one more thing that people can be like, wow, I really appreciate the work that's going into it. And now I understand why my food tastes so good and, and why it costs what it costs, you know, which is a huge part of it. So that's a great thing to look at from the future with Autonomy Farms. In the meantime, where can we find your products? Um, so we sell within Los Angeles. We participate in several farmers markets. So on Saturdays, we are at Burbank. Walking out of Flint Ridge and Calabasas. And then on Sundays, we're at Encino, Pacific, Calisage, Brentwood, and Hollywood. And then you can also find us Wednesdays at the Santa Monica Market. We've got a, a lot of options. We always offer shipping and delivery as well. So you can always go onto our website, onto our farm store, and buy our products there as well. We're just about out of time. But before we go, why don't you give everyone the website where they can find Autonomy Farms and get all of this information about which farmers markets are open and other things to learn about your farm. So um, the website for the farm is www.autonomyfarms.com. And on our website, you can find all of the farmers markets that we participate in, as well as our farm store. Tried to make it super easy on customers, whereas people buy things, you know, you can choose either store pickup to pick up at any of the farmers market, to have it delivered to your house, or to have it shipped. So it makes it pretty basic. Excellent. Well, Meredith, it's been a pleasure having you here. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I definitely appreciate it. It's been great chatting with you. That's all for this episode. If you liked it, you can continue on to the next episode in the All About the Beef series. I'll be talking to Jeff Perez and Ruben Perez about butcher shops as they're the owners of Chops Meat and Fish in Los Angeles.